welcome to Win on the Line, one of Community Radio's national feminist current affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy McMurtry. This show was produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to elders both past and present of these lands, as well as those you are hearing us from today. On this episode of Women on the Line, we speak with two researchers who are conducting fascinating and groundbreaking research surrounding design projects in urban spaces. We'll first hear from Shoshana Dreyfus. Shoshana is a senior lecturer in linguistics at the University of Wollongong. She has over 20 years research and teaching experience in functional and applied linguistics. Her research has mostly focused on nonverbal communication and language disorder and discipline-specific academic literacy, as well as developments in systemic functional linguistic theory and discourse semantics. Shoshana speaks with me about the research she's conducting in partnership with Wollongong City Council to design possibly the world's first all abilities and ages inclusive playground. We'll speak with Shoshana about why an all abilities and all ages playground is important shifting notions of inclusivity and how we can create social and cultural change surrounding the lived experiences of people with intellectual disabilities. You'll then hear from Catherine Horsfall. Catherine is a PhD researcher from the University of Melbourne in the Green Infrastructure Research Group. Catherine comes from a background in public policy and community advocacy and has a keen interest in how urban communities interact with the natural world. Catherine recently completed a Masters of Urban Horticulture with a focus on creating greener, more livable cities. Catherine spoke with me about her research project in partnership with the City of Melbourne to develop Melbourne's first Indigenous wildlife meadow at Royal Park in Melbourne. Catherine spoke with me at length about how the project is being conducted, what this project will mean for the possibilities for urban plant design, and the significance of the regeneration of biodiversity in restoring land to something closer to that which was prior to colonisation and urban redevelopment. Hi, I'm Shoshana Dreyfus. I work as a senior lecturer in linguistics at the University of Wollongong. So the current project, which is called Giving Voice to the Voiceless, Obtaining the Opinions of Young Adults with Intellectual Disability Who Are Functionally Nonverbal, oh my God, that's a mouthful, um, (laughs) is a project essentially stemming from the fact that one of my three boys has a severe intellectual disability and doesn't speak. And he's now 25 years old and lives in a group home. And one of the things he loves to do is play on playgrounds, as do many of his mates, his cohort. And um, one thing that I noticed about him and his mates when I visited their group home Facebook page is how big they are compared to the size of the playgrounds that they're playing on. So this gave me an idea that in my region, we should have an adult-sized playground because these guys get taken to the playground heaps. And not only are playgrounds built for 0 to 12-year-olds in New South Wales and mostly around the world, but 
families who have small children aren't really happy about their young children playing on the same playgrounds as fully grown young adults, often male, with intellectual disability who they don't know. And that's understandable. I went on this mission then to lobby my local council to build a playground that was adult size and I was successful. So um, my council, which is called Wollongong City Council, have put in their planning and their budget to build an all abilities, all ages playground somewhere in the Wollongong region. And um, just for your listeners, Wollongong's a small um, city about an hour and a half south of Sydney and sits on the coast um, there. And um, this is a really, really exciting project because not only is it a first for the Wollongong region, it's possibly a first for Australia and possibly a first for the world. We haven't actually been able to find an adult-sized playground that is dedicated to the type of play that we normally see children's playgrounds dedicated to. So when you think about adult-sized playgrounds, you typically get those gym equipment type playgrounds or these kind of ninja courses that are based on strength and agility and ability, but not playgrounds that are dedicated to the needs of young adults with intellectual disability. Because the council typically conduct community consultation when they're going to build a big expensive playground, they do focus groups with school kids in the region to find out what they'd like in their playground and so on. But council didn't have the expertise to conduct this kind of community engagement with young adults with intellectual disability who are primarily nonverbal. And I do. Because of that, I decided to apply for a research grant and I put together a little um, research team of people with relevant expertise in my region to do the community consultation with young adults with intellectual disability who are functionally nonverbal, meaning, you know, they, they may have a few sounds or words, but they don't use the, you know, verbal speech of language to communicate most of their meanings um, about what they want in this playground because normally what happens is people like that, they don't get asked because it's much, much easier to ask their families, carers and supporters what they like. But we decided, no, we're going to give it a red hot go and try and consult with them about what they want in a playground. So that's what we're currently doing at the moment. We're in the research phase and we will feed the results of the research back to council, which they will then give to the playground designer um, to work with them and us in building this playground. It is an interesting thing looking at, you know, the way in which it's just not a model that's been considered before, you know, this this idea of like how can we work with, with the person, you know, with disability, their carers, you know, how do we actually maybe have a conversation between all of those people to do this work rather than just consulting the carers? Just toying around with this idea of inclusion, having listened to a podcast on a completely different topic, which came up with the idea of expansion rather than inclusion. Because when you think about inclusion, it's almost like you're saying, we need them to come into us. Um, And sometimes it's sort of tacked on as an afterthought, like, We've got a shopping centre, how do we make it inclusive? Or we've got schools already, how do we make them inclusive? Whereas in a sense, I'm arguing for expansion because expansion implies how do we stretch ourselves out to them rather than pull themselves into us? So this is, I guess, what I'm 
trying with this project is in a sense, how do we expand our purview out to them and meet them at their point of need rather than pull them into us? Now, it's it's really only a very subtle difference because I reckon if we presented this idea to inclusion specialists and activists, they'll say that's exactly what we're trying to do. But being a linguist who focuses on meaning, to me, that subtle difference is actually quite significant. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I can really hear that actually. Um, yeah, so it, it, it actually already, by the word inclusive, it already posits the idea of the other. There's always the other within that kind of language, you know. That's right. It, it, it really is the other, isn't it? And so, and in a sense, we're trying to absorb the other in us, which is a great, a great idea. It's not that I'm dissing that idea, but in a sense, if we focus on expansion, that requires more of us to change and to come out to them. And um, the the woman who's called Lauren Collins, who's just from some organisation called IDEO, um, which is where I heard the podcast. In fact, someone in council put me onto this podcast. She gives this lovely example of what the difference is between an inclusive culture and an expansive culture. And she uses the example of dress codes at a party. And she says, an inclusive culture is one where if you show up to a party, and you're not wearing the dress code, they'll still let you in. But in a culture that's open to expanding, when you show up to that same party and you're not in the dress code, not only do they let you in, but they ask you to pick the music. So with a culture open to expansion, people can bring their true and authentic selves because that culture evolves to fit around them as individuals. So that's what I'm asking. I'm asking how can we evolve and grow ourselves around them to, so they can bring their true and authentic selves to the to the project, to the task, to the idea, rather than we try and make them fit in with our ideas. Women on the line. I guess I, I start to think as well about um, the things that you've said about people with intellectual disabilities are often commonly forgotten more generally in the disability sector. What kinds of things do you think people could be doing to shift that that culture? Ah, that's a really good question because in a sense, you can see where our culture has expanded out towards um, people with physical disabilities in the sense that every building now has to have a wheelchair ramp and doorways have to be wide enough for for wheelchair users to get through. So physical things are are quite tangible, aren't they? I think intellectual um, disability is less less tangible in that sense but I guess you know we need to be including people with intellectual disability in more of our environments so for example my 25 year old son with intellectual disability whose name is Bodhi loves riding escalators so I take him every Sunday afternoon into my little town centre called Wollongong where there are over 30 escalators and we go riding escalators and and he gets taken out by a carer a couple of other times a week um, to go escalator riding <laughs> um, in different in other different um, little suburbs of Wollongong that have malls and escalators and things. And so he's kind of known um, in those environments. And in fact, a podcast was even made about him and his love and escalators by another community radio person in Melbourne. In that sense, he's out in the community. People know him. He's got his nonverbal communication needs. He's kind of noisy. I mean, I think it's just about expanding our environments to make sure that people like that are welcome in them. And 
it's just really around expanding our headspace in terms of normativity, I think, you know, in, in what is normal. So people, you know, everyone's a, everyone, I'm going to um, generalise here, but people typically are afraid of things that aren't normal or aren't typical. So the more that we have people like that in and around the community and the less that we segregate people, um, the more I think other people will be open to difference. Absolutely. And you know what I really love about this idea of the um, the All Abilities Adult Playground is that actually I often look at playgrounds and I think, I'd like to go on that, you know, but I'm like, well, I'm an adult without a kid here. <laughs> That's inappropriate, you know, but actually those spaces can become inclusive in the true sense of that kind of meaning where actually anybody and it kind of would may also create opportunities for those relationships to to start to coincide where, you know, adults of different, you know, abilities actually coming together in, in meaningful ways in the same space. Yeah, totally. And I mean, just about every adult who I've spoken to has said what you've said, which is, oh, I'll play on that playground. I love going on a good swing or I love going on a good flying fox or whatever it is, is the first thing. And the second thing is I love that kind of idea of reverse inclusion, which is like, hey, you normal folks, it's okay. You're welcome to play on our playground you know, rather than the other way around. And uh, and I th- I think that will be the case depending on where the playground is put because even when you go to the, the playgrounds that already exist, you see teenagers going on the flying foxes and, you know, adults do complain, oh, my bottom doesn't fit in that swing or I'd go down the slide too but I can't fit in it. So, yeah. Yeah, so we've we've just started our data collection. We took our first um, group of four young men to a really state-of-the-art park in Sydney, a beautiful new wooden park in Oatley Park in the southern part of Sydney, and we followed them and collected data on their play preferences, and there were some surprises in that. For instance, we hadn't listed the walking track as part of the play equipment, and one of the participants just wanted to walk around the park on the walking track. And while... Um, group home managers and day program managers have reported to us that walking tracks are one of the important things when they select a park to take their participants to. Um, We had forgotten about that. So we were trying to be expansive and flexible um, and notice what their preferences were, even if they weren't in our list of things to do. When are you looking that the park would be available to people to use? Part of the funding has to be spent before the end of this financial year and then we will also fundraise. So I think there will be something to play on before June 30, 2021. But given a lot of the grants that we can apply for are closed for this year and we'll be applying for them into next year and doing some fundraising into next year, we may possibly have a two-stage build where part of the playground will built with the budget that has to be spent within this financial year and then another part of the playground to be built in the next financial year. And right around Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line. We've been speaking with Shoshana Dreyfus, Senior Lecturer in Linguistics at the University of Wollongong, about her research project working with people who are non-verbal communicators in co-designing at all abilities and all ages inclusive playground in the city of Wollongong. We'll now hear from Catherine Horsfall about her research project in partnership with the City of Melbourne to develop Melbourne's first Indigenous wildlife meadow at Royal Park.
My name is Catherine Horsfall. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Melbourne with the Green Infrastructure Research Group. And I'm looking into the restoration of um, grassland and grassy woodland communities using direct seeding. We're direct seeding a native meadow. And so that's using species that are indigenous to Melbourne um, that would have been here prior to the city and the city's streets and pavements. And we've grown a whole bunch of wildflower seed and procured some native grass seed. And we've sown that under some eucalypts to try and get an emergent biodiverse ground layer community at that site that people can look at. Can you paint us a picture of what you're hoping to return the land to? Well, the site that we're working in is under a eucalypt um, canopy. It's a quite a young canopy of eucalypt trees. In this case, it's river redgums. Um, it's a slightly sloping site. Um, and as I said, it has mulch. Uh, so it's really typical of what you might see in urban parks. Um, the mulch is there to control the weeds and the canopy's there, um, but we're missing that shrub layer or that ground level vegetation community. And so in perhaps a natural um, grassy eucalypt woodland, um, which is a, a critically endangered ecological community here in Victoria, you would find a level at the ground, um, at the ground level, sorry, a, a plant community at the ground level, which might consist of a fairly open matrix of grasses plus flowering species. Um, and we know that, you know, that that level of vegetation is really important to support biodiversity and attract insects and native birds. So what we hope to do is to get a little bit more biodiversity happening at that ground level, plant those plants that can support the insects and birds and, and hopefully provide something that's a little bit more interesting to look at than wood chips. So where's the project at at the moment? Like where are you in terms of the scope of where you want to get to? We've planted native grasses and, and wildflowers. And one of the issues with direct seeding is that the seed for wildflowers can be a little bit hard to procure. Um, so what we actually did in the first instance was plant um, containerized, uh, a containerised production system to produce seed of those wildflowers so that then we could ultimately sow them into the beds at Royal Park. So that's sort of going back, you know, to last year, uh, spring of last year, and, and sowing the seed production crop and collecting seed from those plants all through um, spring and summer and autumn. And if we assume that a lot of the seed that we might put out there doesn't grow, what kind of volumes of seed do we need to apply? And then it's like a, making a recipe. We mix up big buckets of seed and we cast them out um, onto the prepared beds. Uh, we want to avoid the weeds proliferating sorry, and taking over and, and limiting the um, potential for these plants to establish. Direct seeding doesn't give you that immediate hit of getting a pot from the nursery and throwing it in the ground. Um, it is a slow process. Um, I referred to it yesterday as slow gardening and I think it's, it's going to stick. <laughs> but it does mean you have to be patient and I think it does mean you also have to be a little brave because you, don't, you can't reliably predict what plants will emerge and establish and in what format. But what you hope to achieve is uh, a great level of biodiversity and so we're talking about flowers of different colours, um, plants of different heights, but all at that kind of ground level community. 
and we've tried to pick species so that there'll be flowering interest for a long period you know right through it's pretty hard to get things to flower maybe in the depths of winter but you know early spring right through to sort of late autumn and early winter so that's the goal and where we're at at the moment is um, plants are certainly at um, emerging and we've got uh, readily identifiable seedlings uh, and what we're working to do at the moment is to manage those weed loads and that's part of the experiment. I hand weed these garden beds and I quantify the amount of time that that takes and it takes a long time. <laughs> it's been very wet here in Melbourne this year so we've had a really wonderful weed growth event um, and so all that's part of trying to establish, well, what's the best treatment for getting direct seeding working in a public park and what are the kind of management inputs that councils or any other agency looking to undertake this work could reasonably expect. Yeah, so right now it's like a kind of, if I can paint a little word picture, it's, it's sort of a green-tinged carpet, but we're not yet at the stage of having, you know, lovely beautiful big wildflowers we're right in the the business end of managing the weeds and and giving those emergent um, indigenous species the best chance of survival and establishment and so how long do you think that process will take for when you can stop you know hand weeding and actually things are kind of growing themselves oh that's I think that's the 61 million dollar question <laughs> but I definitely think there's an intense period of management through the first year um and uh, I think beyond that, hopefully we're starting to achieve some canopy closure and some, you know, a more resilient plant community in the form of the species that we've put there. Uh, but look, you know, in the long term, there has to be some management framework in place. The, the ambition for this kind of planting comes a little bit um, from some of the work that's been done in the UK and the US where councils have moved to planning roadsides and things like roundabouts with meadows because they recognise that, you know, whereas you have to mow turf, you know, every couple of months at least um, and more frequently in, in high growth periods, a meadow you might just need to cut once a year. So, so the ambition here is to try and get it to establish in a way that's cost effective and then in the long term would be a cost-effective but biodiverse landscape treatment that councils could use more broadly. We're not there yet, but that's, that's the goal of this research is to try and kind of come up with a recipe that means it's a little bit more reliable. Women on the line. Would a project like this, will it support us to have a more resilient and livable city from a climate change perspective? Look, I think it has potential in that regard too, Amy. I think that uh, we know that, you know, we, re we, we rely on biodiversity. It's an ecosystem service that, that helps us as people. Um, and more plants, in my mind, is, is, is better from a climate change perspective. So if we can introduce another level of vegetation uh, under this eucalypt canopy in a public park, then, yeah, I think we are having some perhaps small but at a large scale, um, incrementally larger impact on the health of our cities and the livability for the people who live there. So you mentioned earlier when we were off air um, about the loss of to land and what this project might start to bring back. Can you elaborate more about that for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So 
we have lost a lot of natural temperate grassland and grassy glit woodland um, here in Melbourne and sort of that's something that's true of a lot of southeast Australia um, so you know we've got less than five percent of the original extent of both of those plant communities and and what we have tends to be quite fragmented um, where once these plant communities were really extensive across Victoria and and some might say well that's fine they've been replaced with other plants and don't they serve a similar purpose but we know that um, that these kind of plant communities can be really drought resilient um, they're also very beautiful and and I think you know if we're willing to live in a city that's taken so much of the land that these plant communities originally occupied I think you know we've got to try where possible to restore restore them um, so that you know these species just don't disappear entirely uh, and and I think I think there's a real um, interest in this in this stuff as a as a kind of practical reconciliation measure as well you know that people are fascinated to know what is the story of this country and and what did our landscapes look like perhaps before we built a city on them um, so I think City of Melbourne have been really forward thinking in funding the work and and I really hope we can get a good result. You've been listening to a conversation with Shoshana Dreyfus about her research project to design potentially the world's first all abilities and ages inclusive playground in the city of Wollongong. You also heard from Catherine Horsfall about her research project in partnership with the city of Melbourne to develop Melbourne's first indigenous wildlife meadow at Royal Park. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network. A special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. The theme song for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Amy McLeary. Thanks for tuning into the show. Around people, let me tell you a story an eight year old story of power and pride. British Lord Vesti and Vincent Lingari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesti was fat with money and muscle, beef was his business, broad was his dog. Vincent was lean and spoke very little. He had no bank balance. Her debt was his floor. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things, big things Can land right, right, right. My name is Benjamin
That's all the word I can tell you. 